Good morning, everyone, and thanks for joining us this Sunday at New City. Um, I think all of us know what it's like to make a bad decision. You might have made a few of those in your life. I certainly have. And I remember one of them was about 10 years ago now. My wife, Christine, and I, we were living in Wilmington. I was finishing my master's degree, and we were, we were part of this church plant. I was a, like a pastoral intern working part-time. And at the end of it, I needed to get a full-time job. I was about to finish my degree, and the church was kind of too small to offer me a job. And so I, I was looking at all these churches, and nothing was working out. And I was like, well, I just need to get like a real job then because I got to do something. And about a week after I decided I'm just trying to apply for these real jobs, I get a message from a pastor in the Raleigh area and was like, hey, are you still looking? We're hiring. And I was like, well, this is like a sign. Like I just had to like, I try to do it all on my own and now God's going to provide. And I was like, yeah. And so long story short, uh, came a couple times up to Raleigh, did the interview thing. And, um, you know, I'm like really excited about this, thinking it's going to work out. And uh, I come up to Raleigh again a second time. And Christina was like, you know, don't tell them you're going to do it until we go to church on a Sunday. Like, you know, you got to make sure, you know, it looks like, which I'm like, yeah, that sounds really good. But I'm also like, churches are kind of like all the same, like, like function kind of the same on Sunday mornings. Like, it's not that big of a deal. And so I go up another time. We have this interview. And I was, you know, naive to the process. And I felt a little bit pressured. I don't think that was their goal. But I felt it, and basically it was like, all right, we're going to hire you as our assistant or associate or assistant pastor at their campus that was right across the street from NC State, helping with college students and doing all these things. And they're like, all right, sign here. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll do it. And they're like, we'll give you $500 a month, and then you got to raise your support for the rest. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'll do it. And so I called Christina and told her what happened, and she was like, we haven't even been. And so she was like, this wasn't smart. And I was like, but it's, we, can, we can make it work. It's going to be okay. And so a couple of weeks later, we go to the church on a Sunday to check it out. And it was awful. And I don't mean like the church was a bad church. I just mean it was like awkward. They had, I think, one, maybe one college student. And they were literally right across the street from NC State. And they were saying they had this college ministry. And they're like, well, they're all just out of town this weekend. Like all of them. Like all one of them. It's like what's and so it was it was bad. It was awkward. We drove back to Wilmington. I had to tell them I wasn't going to take the job. And Christina was like, understandably frustrated with this whole thing. But I thought, even though I, it probably wasn't wise, I was in my excitement. I was like, well, we'll make it work. I'll I'll figure it out. I'll just do it without actually going to see the job before you accept it. It would probably have been the wiser thing to do. And so uh, today, as we uh, continue our study through the book of Genesis, we're going to see one of the most famous stories in the scriptures of people doing what is wise in their own eyes. Now, the question before us as we get into the text this morning is this, um, how do we know if we trust God? How do we know? Now, now, I don't just mean like I believe God exists or he's out there, but what does it look like to trust him and what he would have us do as opposed to what we think we should do or what, we, what might be wise in our own eyes? What does it look like to actually trust him? That's what we're going to see this morning. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 3. If not, there's a black one around you. You can uh, read there. Use your phone. And if you don't have a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. Uh, Genesis chapter 3. Now, I'm not going to recap one and two because there's a lot there. You can go online or the podcast and listen to them later if you like. But basically what we've seen so far is God has created everything and it is good. And in Genesis chapter 2, it ends with Adam and Eve. They are naked and they felt no shame. There's completeness. They're in the Garden of Eden where everything is kind of set up for them to succeed. Their goal is for them to rule, to reign, to multiply, and kind of expand this garden of Eden out over the entire world. Things are great at the end of Genesis chapter 2, and then things start to change. So it says this, Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? 
Now, next week, we're going to talk more about the snake and how he was understood and what was going on. But I just want to mention this. If you're reading this and you're like, this is why I don't, this is why the Bible's weird to me, right? Talking snakes, like that doesn't happen. And, and so I, I just want to say, even in the in more ancient world, they would have thought the same thing. Like snakes and animals do not talk. So, so next week, we're going to look at about, about, about more of what's going on there and how they would have understood it. But I just want to say, like, that is a weird question or a legitimate question that we're going to address. And so they would have thought the same thing. Now, I do want to just say this real briefly, however, that we have to remember, remember that, that you and me, we come to the scripture with different assumptions, um, ideas, worldviews than the original audience. And so this, uh, this shapes how we understand what is going on. And so for us, when you hear of a snake, you think creepy kind of like weird, I don't like it, uh, or unless you like the snake, like snakes, then maybe you are weird, but it's like whatever. Like, it's just like, it maybe it, it just has feelings of like icky or whatever, but, it's, but that's about it. Uh, for an ancient world, the ancient worldview, the ancient cultures, they would have, there's a lot more emotive meaning behind a snake than just like they're kind of weird and creepy. In fact, one ancient historian uh, puts it this way. They say, throughout the ancient world, the serpent was endowed with divine or semi-divine qualities. It was venerated as an emblem of health, fertility, immorality, occult wisdom, and chaotic evil. And it was often worshipped. The serpent played a significant role in the mythology, the religious symbolism, and the ancient cults of the ancient, or sorry, the cults of the ancient Near East. Now, you have to remember, too, the Torah, the, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, began to be composed and written right after the exodus from Egypt, where Israel was enslaved for 400 years. They've just left Egypt, and in Egypt, snakes were a massive deal. They were a big deal. And so for us, we read snake, we think creepy. For them, they read snake, and they think something bad has to happen because snakes are not good. Now, I, I want to say this as well. The text also says that the serpent was cunning. Our translation says cunning. Some translations say shrewd or they say crafty. And it comes across as negative, right? It comes across as negative, especially if you know how the story is going to play out. You're like, well, any qualities that this serpent possesses, well, of course they have to be bad. Um, it's actually in Hebrew. It's the Hebrew word arum, and it's actually a neutral word. It's not negative or positive. It's just about what you do with it that can make the cunningness or the shrewdness or the craftiness negative or positive. For example, in Proverbs, a room is something to be sought after. It is something to be obtained. Uh, in places like the book of Job and the book of Exodus, a room is used in a negative sense as it is used here, but it is, it's actually understanding is it is a neutral thing. It is what you do with your craftiness or your shrewdness that can make it good or bad. And so what's happening here is, again, picking up from Genesis chapter 2, the serpent asks if God really said you can't eat from any tree of the garden. So his first question to Eve and to Adam, who is right next to her, is, can you really not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, we know that that is actually not what God said. God did not say you could not eat from any tree. In fact, it was almost the exact opposite. He said you can eat from everything or any tree except for one, which is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so, of course, the serpent here wants God to appear as harsh or restrictive or oppressive, but it's actually the opposite of Genesis 2, where God has created everything. He has made it good for human flourishing. You said you can eat from any tree, but from one. The serpent kind of makes it seem like it's the opposite. And then it says this in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the, trees, from the fruit of the trees in the garden. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not touch it or eat it or you will die. 
So Eve rightly here corrects the serpent, uh, but it is worth noting that she adds something that God does not add. He did not say you could not touch it, only that you could not eat of it. Now, of course, it probably is wise not to touch something that you're not supposed to eat, but it is just worth pointing out the narrative adds that she adds something that God did not actually say, even though everything else she said was correct. And in fact, you actually see this picked up on in other parts of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, where people say, here's what God told me, but they add something to it a little bit, and oftentimes things go poorly. So the narrative never goes or references again the fact that she said touch it, but it is worth noting that she's right about what God says, but it's not exactly what God said. And so here's the serpent's response. When she says, no, we can eat of any tree, but one, again, it says this in verse four, no, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, Now here, the serpent not only contradicts what God says, but he actually presents the fruit of the tree as something worth obtaining for what you will get, and God is only holding it back from you. Now, I always was, there's a lot of questions in Genesis, right? One of the things was, why would you trust the serpent over God? Like, God has given you all these things and says, if you eat of this tree, you will die. Then you have one conversation with the serpent, and you're like, Okay, I guess I'll eat it. Like, that seems like, why would you actually do that? Now, I think it's helpful to see what's going on here. Um, You could paraphrase, so the serpent could be saying, no, you're not going to die. You also could paraphrase the understanding of what the serpent is saying in Hebrew. It's not so much he's saying, of course, you're not going to die, that that God's lying. But rather, don't focus on that. Focus on what you will gain. It's like, well, don't, the dying stuff, whatever. You can be like God or like a God. We're going to see this next week. The, the Hebrew word here is Elohim. And, it's, and the context is actually pretty ambiguous. Is the serpent talking about God himself? Or is the serpent talking about like God's divine counsel or spiritual beings that have a knowledge that Adam and Eve don't have? What seems to be saying here is just like the dying stuff, whatever. Focus on what you can get and don't worry about what might happen negatively. Now, I want to mention this. I want to, for a second, I want to talk about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we're going to, just for a few minutes, we're all going to be Bible nerds and it's going to be amazing, okay? Um, this might, this is confusing, right? Um, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why would this be a bad thing? Like, why would it be bad for Adam and Eve to have wisdom, or to, to have knowledge? Uh, and in fact, um, if they're supposed to rule over all the creation, they need to have wisdom of the knowledge of good and evil. And if they don't have wisdom of the knowledge of good and evil, then how can they be punished for disobeying God when they don't know any better because they don't know the difference, right? These are some questions that you might have reading the text. Even the light's like, I don't know either. And so it's flashing. Um, anyone see just me? No one sees that? Okay, good. Uh, good. No, no, here's what I want to mention. Um, Sometimes in our English translations, we can kind of miss kind of the full meaning of these words. So, so good and evil from Hebrew, and this is where we're going to get nerdy and it's going to be amazing, okay? Good and evil from, from Hebrew, it's the Hebrew words tov and ra. Now, the problem is that the word evil in English is typically narrowly connected to just moral evil. When we hear the word evil, we're thinking morality. But the word raw in uh, Hebrew is actually more broad than just moral evil. In fact, the word good, but we translate the word tov as good in English. This is a good translation or it's a good understanding because the word good, even in English, is more broad. It can be morally good, but it can also mean just like pleasant or enjoyable. Like that was a good sandwich, right? It's like the sandwich is not morally or cosmically right or wrong. It's just like you prefer it, right? Or that was a good game or that was a good experience. It can mean just pleasurable or beneficial. It's not just talking about morality. 
Well, in Hebrew, raw is the same thing. It is also a broad statement. Uh, it does include a moral sense of right and wrong, but it also means unpleasant or harmful or unpreferable. Uh, one biblical scholar, Tim Mackey, argues that evil loads too much cosmic meaning or moral meaning into what's actually going on here. And he, him and many others would say that it's better to understand it not as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. Right, so, so bad here can be moral, like that's a bad person, or it could be preferential, like that was a bad sandwich. And in fact, in the Old Testament, tov and ra is used in all of these ways, not just moral, but also good and bad in the general sense. And so all of that to say, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is certainly not just talking about morality. It's included, but that's not the only thing it's referring to. It's about making decisions in all areas of life. Right now, here's the problem: if somebody is not wise enough, or does not is not mature enough to handle the authority and the ability to make decisions, and they are given the ability to make a bunch of decisions, well, they're going to make a lot of poor decisions. Right? When I was making the decision to take this job and not take it, you know, and not even going to the church, I was lacking Tove and raw in that instance. In fact, this is how it is used throughout the Hebrew Bible. So Tove and raw, knowing Tove and raw ha- happens four times in the Old Testament. Uh, one is in Genesis chapter three. Uh, the next one is in Deuteronomy chapter one. And it says this, your children, your sons who today don't yet know good and evil will enter there. It's talking about the, the Israelites entering into the promised land and the children who don't yet know good or evil or good and bad. Uh, they don't have it yet, but one day they're going to mature and they're going to grow older. And they're the ones who are going Going to enter it. In fact, the other two areas in the Old Testament well refers to children who do not yet have the knowledge of Tov and Ra, or someone who is acting like a child who wants Tov and Ra. Again, the problem, if one is not wise enough to make the right decisions, if they're not mature enough, and they start making decisions, things will go bad. In all the four instances in the Old Testament, uh, the Tov and Ra is talking about making, talking about a mature adult human who has the discernment, who actually knows the difference between good and bad, and yet need to learn how to wield it or use it rightly. Now, I want to say this too. The scriptures, as we say, it's not, it's, it is not helpful to, re, to read the scriptures as like a reference book where like each verse kind of stands on its own. It is wisdom or meditation literature that you read and reread, and it helps you make connections that you might have missed if you only read it one time. And this is happening all over the place in the first couple of chapters of Genesis. Now, the question then becomes this. What does it mean to have these first humans in the garden who have been given great responsibility to rule and to multiply and to reign over the earth. And yet here they're depicted, at least in a psychological sense, not necessarily a physical sense, but in a psychological sense as children who are yet to mature, right? Having that understanding means that Adam and Eve here are depicted here in their moral infancy. Infancy. It's not that they don't know anything. If they don't know any between the right and wrong in every, or any circumstance, it's that they have a lot of maturing and learning to do. Now, here's the problem. Okay, if Adam and Eve, and of course their descendants, are to rule the world, then of course they are going to have to have wisdom, right? They have to have it, otherwise how are they going to do this? Which means this tree does not represent whether or not they are going to gain the knowledge of Tob and Ra. That's not what this tree is about, because again, they have to have it. Rather, it's about how are they going to go about obtaining it? How are they going to go about obtaining it? Are they going to take it for themselves and their timing because it is good in their eyes? Or will they allow in God in his own time to give them the knowledge of Tov and Ra? Now, I want to say this. You might be like, 
How do you get all of that from these four couple of verses? Let me just say this. To be clear, this is not explicitly stated in the text. It doesn't say this explicitly. However, it is heavily implied, especially if you read and reread, for example, how Tobin Ra is always used. It is something worth attaining that will be given to you, but you have to wait until you get it. Right? In every case in the Old Testament, again, the knowledge of Tobin Ra describes children who are going to mature, but they're not mature yet. And so God tells Adam and Eve not to take it from them for themselves with the assumption that it is God who will be the one who will make them wise, which again has to happen if they're going to rule the world. They have to have this knowledge. Well, one biblical scholar puts it this way then with this understanding, uh, rather than putting the tree there simply to test Adam and Eve, because I think that's kind of maybe like the traditional understanding of like God's just trying to test them. When you read the text, it doesn't seem to be the primary reason it's there. Rather than God's putting the tree there simply to test Adam and Eve, it is in more keeping with his character to understand that there, that there would have been use for it in the future. When the time was right, the first couple would be able to eat from it. It's not this bad tree from all times that if you, how, it's when you're ready, you can take it, but you are not ready yet. And so the question then becomes for Adam and Eve and for us who are reading the text is this, who will we trust? Who are we going to trust? Are we going to trust ourselves and our timing and what we want? Or are we going to trust the God who created us and loves us and wants good for us and knows things that we do not yet know, right? What is at stake here is not God withholding from or trying to trick Adam and Eve. Rather, it is an invitation to trust him. And based on all he has done so far, right, they have good reason to trust him, right? He's created everything. He's made it good. They're going to be successful. They love each other. There's no shame. They're walking with God. They have close relationship with him. Everything they have, they have no reason not to trust him. Now, you might wonder, so why don't they? And if God has done everything, why would they even be tempted not to trust him? I kind of mentioned this last week, but it would be worth mentioning again. It kind of reminds me of kids, right? You've, you've been a child at some point. And of course, if you have a kid or you've had kids, you, you know this as well. Like kids, they have no idea how much their parents actually do for them. Like none. Like our kids, Finley and Roman, I love them. They're awesome. I'm, I'm not complaining at all. But they have no idea how much they had altered my schedule and my finances, and the things how I would spend my time, and my weekends. Like, they have, they have no idea. Now, they're grateful, and they're thankful for food, and like playing, and all that stuff, but they, they, there's just no comprehension for all that I've actually done for them. So it's easy for them not to maybe at sometimes trust me, because they don't know what I know. They don't know how much I have done for them. So Adam and Eve are in this same spot. Are they going to trust this God who loves them, or are they going to trust what they think he is withholding from them? Who are they going to trust? Themselves, the serpent in themselves, or the Lord? And so here's what happens. Verse 4. Again, the serpent says this. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And who doesn't want to be like God? Like, who doesn't want to know stuff? Of course you do. Verse 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig, seeds, fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. 
In other words, what we see happening here is that instead of trusting God, Eve and Adam, who is with her, decide what, to, decide what is good in their own eyes, and they take it. They do the very thing, really the only thing that God told them not to do. In fact, the Hebrew grammar here, and it comes across pretty easily in English, that this is both of them. In fact, Eve says we to the serpent, and in verse 6, it says Adam was with her. Like, they're there together. It's not like Adam is like somewhere off. They're both standing there. They're both seeing what has happened, and they trusted in what they thought was best. There's probably some reservation there, but they're kind of convincing themselves, justifying it. But look what we get. So they take from it, and it doesn't do what they thought. Immediately, they notice that they are naked. They cover themselves, which again is implying a sense of shame here, that something is wrong. And instead of bringing life and vitality, this tree has brought shame and worry. And so now both of their eyes are open, and for the first time, they hide their bodies from, or sorry, the first thing that they do is they hide their bodies from one another. And so this knowledge, instead of bringing them together, ends up dividing them. Again, initially in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, they were two or become one. They were naked and they felt no shame. They were living in harmony together. And the moment they take it upon themselves to be the ones who know the difference between good and bad, all of a sudden, there is division. And so not only do they hide from one another, they also hide from God. It says this in verse 8, if we keep reading. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid, this is Adam speaking, because I was naked, so I hid. So what's happening here is that they, they hear the sound of the Lord and they hide. Now, our translation says it was the evening breeze. Some translations say the cool breeze or the cool of the day. It's translated differently. Typically, if you see words translated differently among translations, it's because there's some meaning there, there's some ambiguity there, or maybe translating it into English is kind of awkward. Um, literally, how you would translate this is in the wind of the day or in the spirit of the day. Um, it actually doesn't actually say in the text what part of the day it was or if it was cold or not, but they're just trying to say that God's spirit is is coming. In fact, some scholars argue that he, his spirit arrives like a storm. So part of the reason that they hide is not just because they're in shame, but they're also afraid because it's like there's a storm and it's scary. Clearly something is wrong. So God arrives on the scene and he calls out to them and Adam tells them they're hiding and they're hiding out of fear. Now, this is the first time that fear appears in the scriptures and it is not a good fear, right? They didn't fear and trust the Lord, which led to life. Uh, and, 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 and refrained from the tree. Now their fear is a fear of the Lord that results from disobedience. So they hide because they are ashamed. They hide from one another and they hide from God. And it shows us in this text what is true for all of us. And that is that the realization of sin always leads to shame. The realization of sin and wrongdoing in your life and my life always leads to shame. Now, you might be like, well, I've done a lot of things that I didn't feel bad for. Now, here's the thing. You might not have thought it in the moment. You might not have realized that it was wrong in the moment, or you might not have believed it was that wrong, and so you didn't. But when we know in our lives, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, or not when we do things that we know are wrong, what do we want to do? Well, we certainly don't want to tell people. We don't want people to find out about it, and so we hide it. We try to cover it up. That's what's happening here. It always leads to shame. Our natural inclination is to always hide. And so what happens here, what do they do? They hide from the good God who has given them 
everything. He has given them everything and provided for them and loved them. But they hide because they know they have done something wrong. It kind of makes me think of potty training my kids. And uh, if you're potty training, if you're potty trained, you've, uh, you, you don't know what I'm talking about. When you start potty training a child, at first they don't really know, like, it's bad, and so like you take off the diaper, and they're like peeing everywhere. Like this is great, and uh, at least one of my kids were anyway. And so like you know, it's like whatever. But after a while, they begin to realize, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. And maybe towards the end of the process, like when they have fewer and fewer accidents, when they do have an accident, what do they typically do? Well, they don't typically tell you because they're ashamed. Uh, I remember a couple years ago, or for one of our kids, we we were potty training them, and this was like towards the end of the process, and and uh, one day they were like in their room and they were like super quiet, and I hadn't heard anything for a while, and so like uh, and the door was closed, and so I walked in, I opened the door, and they're sitting on on the ground like crisscross applesauce, no toys around them or anything, and I'm like. Well, I know you're not praying. I'm not that good of a pastor. So, like, what's happening here? And uh, and uh, we come to find out what happened was they had an accident on the carpet, and they just sat on it because they didn't want me to know. They didn't want anyone to know, find out what they did because they knew or they were ashamed of what they had done. Now, here's the thing. Even with that example, you know, as a parent, now you might get frustrated and you might get annoyed, but you know that they're trying. You love them. Like, you're not mad. You're not angry. But they, still, they're like, I shouldn't have done this. Something is wrong. And so they hide it. They don't tell, they don't repent, they are ashamed of what they have done. And, and I just want to say this, some of us are here today, some of you might be here today, and you've carried the weight of your shame for so long that you haven't told anyone, you maybe feel like God can never forgive you, or you think, if people only knew what I've done, that's what we think. We, like Adam and Eve, we forget the good and the loving character of God. In fact, because of the result of sin and shame, the prophet Isaiah writes this about the Messiah to come. In Isaiah 53, he's talking about the suffering servant who's ultimately going to be Jesus. And here's what he said. He said, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Jesus was viewed as shameful, someone to avoid, someone not to associate with. But it's in fact, this shame is what Jesus took for us. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says this, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, for the joy that laid before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What Hebrews is telling us is that the joy that lay before him, not because he enjoyed the crucifixion or enjoyed the separation from God the Father that he has never experienced, that he, he loved taking our sin and our shame. He didn't love that. What he loved was making it possible for us to experience the grace and mercy of God. What he loved, what was joyful of him is that he's providing the opportunity for you and, the, for you and me in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our shame, to be accepted and to be loved by God. The good news of the gospel is that you don't have to hide. The good news of the gospel is that you don't have to pretend you have it all together because Jesus has it all together on your behalf. One of the, the things we say often here at New City Church is that because of Jesus, if those of us who are followers of Jesus, you have nothing to prove and you have no one to impress. You have nothing to prove because Jesus proved it on the cross in his perfect life, death, and burial, and resurrection. And you have no one to impress because if you are in Christ, God looks at you the same way he looks at Jesus, which is blameless and righteous and holy and pure and worthy of inheritance that he takes our shame, or to put it this way, the realization of shame or of sin doesn't have to end with shame. 
It might start that, you might feel it, but it does not have to end there. It does not have to stay with you. We, we, while we might think just like Adam and Eve, because of Jesus, we don't have to hide like Adam and Eve. That we have a God who loves us. Our inclination is to do exactly what they have done. But the gospel of Jesus is I'm coming, not, not after you figured it out, but right in the midst of your sin and your shame, I am there. That we can go to him, that we can be honest with him and one, and one another. Now, this doesn't mean we might not have consequences or hardships out of the choices that we made, but it does not have to lead us in shame because God loves us enough to rescue it from us. Now, if we continue reading the text this morning, it then says this in verse 10. Again, God is visiting Adam and Eve after they take from the tree, and he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I'd hid. Then he asked, as God asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to me, she gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate. So what's happening here is Adam immediately blames Eve. Well, he, he really blames God. Like you gave her to me and she made me do it. Like, so he's blaming everyone else. He blames God, blames Eve. And then what we see developing here is that you now have really two roles for Eve. So in Genesis chapter two, she is the rescuer for the man, goodness, life, multiplication, human flourishing. But now Eve and Adam did what was wise in their own eyes and they caused a problem. And so Adam now blames her. Kind of blames God and he blames her. You gave her to me. She gave me the fruit. And now there is division between man and the woman. Not just like nakedness division, but even like I'm at her, she's, her, she's at fault or he's at fault. There is division. Now I do want to say this. It's worth noting um, because in an, in an ideal Eden, the wise Eve came and could have led to help and to life and to flourishing. And now you have an Eve who was foolish and Adam was foolish too. But for this point, you have an Eve who was foolish and she falls in tempta- to temptation, which ultimately leads to death. Now, these two images of Eve are actually fundamental to the book of Proverbs, for example, where it talks about lady wisdom and lady folly. And it's playing on Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3, who Eve is given the personification of wisdom, and you and I have to choose who we are going to follow, the the Eve of wisdom or the, the, the Eve of foolishness. And of course, the rest of the book of Genesis, as we're going to see, is full of people doing what is right in their own eyes and then hurting each other. And the narrative is consistently, as we're going to see from here forward, it is consistently searching for someone, as is going to be hinted at next week, who will redeem what is broken. It is searching for someone who will do not what is wise in their own eyes, but what is actually the loving and the pure and the holy and the godly thing to do. For our purposes this morning, here's how the text ends. Again, we're ending kind of in an awkward spot right in the middle of chapter 13. It says this, chapter 3, verse 13. It says, so the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. At least to commend her, she's at least honest about what happened. She's not like, well, this happened. Like Adam's like blaming everyone else. She just says what happened. Though, I, though in her defense, it would be more fair to say that the serpent deceived both of them as Adam was there too and offered no protest to anything that was going on. Now, what happens then is that as you read this story, if you leave, especially where we're leaving today, kind of right in the middle, you, you walk away thinking if we are ever going to recover the Eden ideal, 
We are going to need humans who can submit to God's wisdom, not take and define wisdom on their own or on their, with their own desires, but trust God's wisdom and God's commands and God's timing. That would result in men and women not trying to leverage power over each other as we're going to see next week, but because again, the ideal of Genesis chapter one and two is that male and female are co-ruling, co-equals together. Now, why did this division and shame happen? Again, because they did what was wise in their own eyes. And so for us this morning, as I begin, the question we're looking at is, how do you know if you trust God or if we trust God? How do we know? Well, here's the answer. What we do reveals who we trust. Not just what we say, what we think, but what we actually do. And, and, you, and I mean this in two ways. Not just like, this isn't like a salvation by works, like you got to do all the right things all the time or else God hasn't forgiven you. But it's like, hey, if you're my following Jesus, am I trying? Is there fruit in my life that actually demonstrates that I'm following him? And when I blow it, how do I respond? Do I try to run and try to figure it out on my own, try to make it better so God's no longer angry with me? Or do I go to him humbly with repentance, being honest because he already knows? Do I trust that his grace in Jesus is sufficient, not me trying to earn it. Do I trust him? I love, I want to read this quote again and, and kind of read it in its totality. Uh, again, talking about the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or good and, or good and bad, uh, John Walton puts it this way. Again, rather than God's putting the tree there simply to test Adam and Eve, it is in more keeping with his character to understand what use it would have in the future. When the time was right, the first couple would be able to eat from it. And then he says this, one can compare this to the temptation of Christ. When Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world, that Jesus would bow down to him. If you're familiar, after the 40 days of prayer and fasting, Jesus has this temptation with Satan before he goes on and does his earthly ministry. And he's basically, Satan's basically like, if you bow down to me, all this could be yours. So he says this, there is nothing wrong with Christ ruling all the kingdoms of the world. In fact, it was his destiny, right? That's what has to happen. The temptation involved bypassing appropriate process and timing, seizing them through deviant means. It's not that Jesus wasn't ready for it when he was tempted, but there was things he had to do before he took over the rule and uh, took over the principalities of evil and darkness and has all the earth submitting to him. It was not time for it yet. Right? Who Jesus is and what he has done is that he trusted when we did it that he lived a perfect life when you and I did it, that he took our sin and our shame so that we could experience the goodness of the God. The good news of the gospel is not you tried really hard and didn't screw up. The good news of the gospel is that in the midst of your brokenness and shame, that God loves us right where we are, not some future version of you. Again, what we do reveals who we trust. Am I going to follow him and his righteousness? And when I blow it, am I going to be honest about my need for him? Or am I going to assume it's all on me, that I got to try harder, that I got to do better? And then one day, if God's in a good mood and I do enough good stuff, then he redeems me. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has come to do for us what we could not do for ourselves and is inviting us in today in the midst of our sin and our shame, not some future better version of us.